Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. That's our new intro music. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> Recovery Lab's funky ass beats. <laughs> anyway, I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. This is episode number 66. 66. How about Steve that, Robertson? Man? man, thank you. Happy to be here. Well, glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. Uh, and also a word to our listener. Let me switch camera angles here. Um, so I am trying to be a part of the episode as well as produce the episode with multiple cameras all simultaneously. So my camera angle switching may be slightly delayed, but um, I'm doing the best that I can and we'll make this as, as awesome as possible. So um, Steve, first of all, thank you so much for coming today. I know you drove here from Starkville today, so that is um, absolutely insane. And um, we're just, we're grateful. You know, I had the opportunity of meeting you not too long ago. Actually, what was that last weekend, week before that at uh, Ashley Dead Eye Jones house, uh, with your your absolutely insanely lovely wife Dana. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Who do I invoice for this? By the way? <laughs> so right. Yeah. Um, so no, but she, you guys were absolutely lovely, and you. Um, you know that was playing. Although I didn't play, but watching you guys play Rook in the in Ashley's den, um, it just it took me back to like high school days of playing around. You know, sitting around a table with a bunch of friends, and it was it was really a magical moment for me. So. Uh, I was I was really really blessed to be able to experience that with you guys. So, all right, Drew. Um, well, let's let's do this. Um, I I know you've got a new book out, right? Yep, got a brand new one out. I already working on the next one. Okay, Sorry. great. And if you would make sure you stay right in front of that mic right there. All right. So, um, so tell us a little bit about um, the book, and then we'll also you know dive into a little bit about what makes Steve Steve. Well. That could take all day, but um, <laughs> yeah, the new book, When the Bottom Falls, is out. It's been out for a couple months, doing extremely well, and uh, you never know what to expect with that kind of thing, because I'm stepping out of the sports genre a little bit. You know, sports books have done exceptionally well, and this is more of a memoir. It's about, you know, kind of what led to me uh, turning to drugs and alcohol and becoming a drug addict, and how I was able to get sober and how I've been able to stay sober now, uh, coming up on 32 years in a month, you know, so... Um, I think I, I would struggle to say that I'm an expert on the topic, but I would say that I've, I've worked a pretty good program of recovery and, and I just did not want to live a life where I did not impart the things that I have learned along the way about how, how to stay clean and sober. And there's so many books written about addiction from a clinical point of view. Like there are a lot of, you know, addictionologists and people like that that have written books. This is real world knowledge. I mean, this is one of those things from somebody who's actually done it. You don't learn this in a classroom. You learn it by living life on life's terms. And so I just felt like I needed to write that book before I died. And uh, I used to have this crippling fear that I would lay on my deathbed having never written a book. And now I'm working on research for number seven. Matter of fact, I was uh, looking through some newspaper articles from 1912 earlier this morning for the next book. I'm writing a biography about Duty Noble, the most notable 
sports figure in Mississippi State history, and so I'm excited about that. But um, yeah, you were doing some research on that the other weekend, weren't you? That's you and every Dana day. Were down there? Okay. It's, it's every day, and, and it's, I joke with this. Like uh, a friend of mine told me, he said, "I think you are now the world's." Uh, most renowned expert on Duty Noble. I think Dana, my wife, is number two, and she's sick and tired of hearing about it. Because uh, <laughs> that's what happens. I mean, when you get immersed in a project, I mean, it's like you learn a little nugget here. Like, you know, State and Ole Miss didn't play 19, 12, 13, or 14. And I don't know that many people understand why that is. And so today I was able well, to – Well, you want to share with us? Because I'm kind of curious now. Well, Ole Miss was kicked out of the Southeastern – the Southern Intercollegiate Athletics Association for playing ineligible players. So they were you know, precluded from playing – uh, league schools for, for basically two and a half years. And so we didn't have an egg bowl in 1912, 13 or 14. And so, and I'll write more about that in the book, but uh, that's the fun thing about being a researcher and writing books that are of historical value is that there's so many stories out there that people don't know, or they know just a little bit about, they don't understand. I'm sure every state and Ole Miss fan has looked at the series rivalry and said, well, why didn't they play f those three years? Well, you know, now we know. And Got quotes and telegrams and all kind of cool stuff like that that's uh, never been made available to this generation. And so that's the fun part about all this is finding things that uh, people find of interest. Well, it's certainly interesting to us. And you're a podcast guest created by God himself because you have lots of things that you've thought through and you have opinions. And I think that is one of the most interesting things. I, I, I was really caught, uh, taken by your your appearance on Ashley's show that I want one of the things I did in preparation of today for today. Uh, well, ha, what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you that made you want to write the book? The autobiography when the bottom falls, as opposed to just stick it. I mean, what was the deciding factor there? Well, my wife was travel nurse in New Mexico, which nearly killed me. And I say that all the time and I don't think she likes it, but that's okay. She can learn to live with it, you know, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not built for that. Like, and I, I think in the beginning I was so busy writing books and, you know, booking rock shows and doing that kind of stuff. And one day I just woke up and I was like, where, where is my wife? You know, how did I ever agree to this? You know, she's 17 and a half hours away from home. It was my kid's senior year. And so I made a lot of trips out there to go see her. And um, it was on one of those trips back. I mean, my heart was just so tender and I thought, this is the time to write this book. I mean, I was initially writing this book when I got the book contract for Flim Flam. I had no idea what I was doing. Just going to sit down and write a book and then, you know, pitch it and see if I couldn't get it picked up. And and um, I just felt like maybe the timing wasn't right. You know, it's like I, I had a friend of mine, and she said this, that, you know, God has given you this platform and established this platform as a writer for you for you to tell this story. And, and that was actually years ago. And I always remembered that. It's like the reason that that didn't happen when it was, when I thought it was supposed to happen is because it wasn't supposed to happen then. And so, you know, thankfully I've had, you know, six books. I'll pick up a clarion ledger before I leave town today and a good chance it'll be on the bestseller list again. And, and that, that's a special thing. It really is. And it, it never gets to be old hat for me. I was at a book signing and I won't, I won't mention names cause I don't want to embarrass people, but, um, I'd have got it, a very renowned writer that I respect so much. He said, Steve, you're always on the list. And I'm like, what, what list? And he said, well, you're always on the Mississippi bestsellers list. And uh, one of our, our peers said, I was on there for one week and it was the greatest week. I have it framed in my office. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I won't say that it's come easy for me, but uh, every time I've written a book, the, the book buying public of Mississippi has been very receptive to that. 
And uh, I never, ever, ever, ever take that for granted. And it's so incredibly special to me. Well, we have a Mississippi has a rich literary Absolutely. tradition. Uh, one of my favorite jobs of all time. Shout out to John Evans of Lemuria. Uh, I loved working there and it's great people. And really, there is a rich tradition. There are fantastic writers from Mississippi who love to tell interesting stories. And I'm honored that we have a new uh, new member yeah, of, that, I, of that community here. I, I love it. Keeping I think, the tradition alive. Yeah, 100%. 100%. The Mississippi is so rich and, and has a lot of culture and a lot of incredibly, insanely talented writers that have come out of the state. And I think a lot of times people don't don't really realize that. But one of the things that that I just keeps running and running through my mind, and I, I just finished When the Bottom Falls last night, and I, I, I just, there are a few moments when, you know, when you guys were talking about um, you know, the, the children that were lost and how you felt about that, how Dana felt about that, how incredibly difficult it was. And you were bearing your soul in this book. And honestly, I'm not a book reader. I'm, I'm, I, and I, and I'm a bit embarrassed to say that, but I'm not, but you inspired me when, when you agreed to come on this show you inspired, you know what? I'm going to do some research. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to research this. I want this to be a success. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this book. And without you, I would have never picked up that book. I would have never probably gotten back in to reading. And now I, I, I probably will be doing that every night. It's calming, it's peaceful and it's lovely. So thank you for that, for, for bringing me back into that world. But the, the, the mere fact that you were, you know, a convict. You were uh, in the darkness. You were in the darkest of darkest places, and you realized that this was not working anymore, and you decided to do something different. And now, 32 years later, give or take, you are following your dreams. You're following your passions. You're doing what you love. And and I just want our, our listeners and viewers if, if you're struggling, if you're having a hard time, look at this man sitting on this chair right here. He was exactly where you were. Drew and I were exactly where you are when, when you were struggling, when we were struggling with drugs and alcohol. There is a way out. There is a path out. You just have to have a little bit of willingness to do something different. Sure. Um, and, and that's the first thing I'll say is about the Lemuria thing. So when I was in middle school, and John didn't like it when I tell this story. He said it makes him feel old. But uh, they were across the highway, right? They were across the interstate. And uh, there was nowhere to buy books in my hometown of Columbia, Mississippi. I mean, you, you, you didn't have Amazon back then. You know, we, right. we didn't right. even have the internet back then, you know. And, you know, we're all from the 1900s, you know. And so <laughs> when things were a little more pedestrian. But um, we took a field trip. We'd ordered our books. Parents had to give us a check. You know, we'd give the teacher and ordered these books. We were doing some segment on and we went to Jackson on a field trip, and we got our books as part of the field trip. And we went to Lemuria Books. And I remember walking around that bookstore. I was like, this is a real bookstore. And um, I said, one of these days, I'm going to have a book on the shelves. And, and thankfully, I have six. And that awesome. green couch is iconic in Mississippi. That's the same place that John Grisham sat, same place you draw wealthy sat. And so when I go have a chance to sit there and sign books and, and meet with people, it is, it is in really respects – it's not just about hope, but about redemption, 
right? And uh, kind of along the lines of what Daniel was saying is that I, I was so far away from where I needed to be that any step I took was in the right direction. I love that. And um, I think it's important to understand, you know, hope is the greatest of all things. And I write that in the book because there are so many people out there that feel hopeless. And there were people that gave up on me. You know, they were just I, I was left for dead by so many people. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm 6'2", 215-some-odd pounds today. So when I checked into rehab, I was 6'2", 146 pounds. And I had to live with an IV drip in my arm for a couple of days. And, um, you know, it was a real dramatic moment in my life when I just wanted to go to bed, right? I mean, I'd been, I'd been arrested. I was in uh, Lamar County jail for six days, no drugs or alcohol, having a detox the old-fashioned way. And, um Thought about tying a sheet over my neck and jumping off the rail. And, you know, I had uh, some other suicide attempts before then. And Yeah, you were you were asking God to take you. Every day. Every day. Every day. And when I lay there in that bed in, in Pine Grove, I, I just I prayed to die. And what like, happened with that man that came in that room and started yeah, doing it? Was, uh, it's a guy named Dr. Harmon Foster, and uh, he's a guy that lost his license to practice meds. And, and uh and so I'm, I'm laying there just wanting to die, and I wake up, and, and there's this stranger kneeling at my bedside praying for God to save my life. And at that point, I didn't want to live, you know. And uh, as I wrote in the book, I mean, thankfully, he had a better relationship with God at that time <laughs> than I did, right? A little more into it. Yeah. And um, I just felt like, you know what, how, how could this complete stranger feel this so passionately about a life that I wanted to lose? You know, and a lot of it was just because the path to redemption was was so incredibly narrow, right? It's like, I, and it was just going to, it was just too much to overcome. And that's what happens is you convince yourself there's no coming back from this. Yeah, well, in all, in all real ways of measure, all, by all real metrics, it's un, undiscernible. Mm -hmm. You know, you, your, your life has spiraled into nothingness and there is no real way of knowing how, how do I ever get back to something that seems normal? That something that seems right. And the redeeming. worst, the worst part is like the vast majority of the time that spiral was was due to us and our poor life choices. Like we we may point fingers all the time, but deep down we know like we did this to ourselves. You know what I mean? No, nobody forced us to put drugs or alcohol into sure. our system. Like this was a choice that we made, and now we're having to pay the consequences for it, and it sucks. Well, and that, that's the honest moment, right? It's when there's nobody else to blame. Like when you reach the end of your own bad decisions and there's nobody else to blame. I think that's, that's really step one. I mean, right, when we start right. talking about the 12 steps of recovery and that sort of stuff, it's when you reach the point where you realize, I am I a did this. victim of my own decisions. I may have had some co-conspirators in my demise. Sure. But at the end of the day, I am responsible for me. And and so that is a humbling but also empowering moment in the life of the still suffering addict. You're it's, speaking my love language. I feel the exact same way for yeah. real. Yeah. And that, but that, that's what happens. It's like and it, so we were at a point powerless, but when we're given the ability to choose again, that can never be taken away from us. Well, that coin of powerlessness that is described at length and discussed at nauseum in AA meetings has a flip side to it. Well, if I'm powerless over this, then that means I'm not powerless over some other things. 
I can do some right. things that will probably yield favorable results as opposed to doubling down on my misery by continuing to drink and use and, you know. Right, which we're all familiar yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing about it is it becomes such a, a, such a self-fulfilling prophecy. I, right. sure. You know, one of my dear friends, and I lost him, I write about him in the book, is uh, Scott Sorensen. And I remember one day we're, we're just sitting around just shooting the breeze in my apartment, and he goes, you know, there's two kinds of people in recovery. There are those that think they're going to make it and those that think they won't. And the funny thing is they're both right. Right. You know, no, nobody gets sober by accident, right? You, and I didn't get lucky. I mean, it's like I, I'm, I've i earned every single day. The only thing that I was given was a second chance. And then, of course, the knowledge that was imparted to me by the old timers and people that have gone before me. But but I didn't get lucky. You know, and, and I, I may have had some times in my life that I may have been, quote, unlucky. But at the end of the day, I knew the right thing to do at every crossroads in my life. I just didn't do it. And so once you understand that aspect of it is that, yeah, I got myself into this mess with the help of some other people. I can also get myself out of this mess. And once you're free from it, you know, once you get out of the jungle and step two comes and you're restored to sanity and things of that nature, then all of a sudden you have a semblance of control. Now, you, you know, you're still living life on life's terms. And uh, that was a very naive belief that I had for a long time is that, I thought if I just did all the right things, I went to work every day, didn't get in trouble, you know, didn't get, you know, have trouble with cops, or I didn't drink or to do drugs, that, that life wouldn't happen to me. And that's just not true. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you live in that pink cloud for as long as you can, but the reality of it is, is there will come a day in your life when something beyond your control happens that is going to knock you on your butt. What are you going to do then? Anybody can stay clean and sober when you're getting what you want out of life. Any, but there's no skill to that. You don't need a sponsor. You don't need steps. You don't need a program. You can just say, hey, well, everything is lovely, so I'm just going to – I'll just keep riding the wave. What do you do when life kicks you in the nuts and laughs in your face? Yeah. What do you do then? That's when the program comes in. That's when you have to make sure that you've got a good foundation because that day is coming. And, it's, and it, mama will tell you. You know, baby, some days there's going to be days like this, but she'll never know how many of them are going to be, and there's going to be a lot of them. What do you do then? And that's why you have to have a support system. You have to have people that you can confide in. I got, listen, I got stories from other people and secrets that I will take to my grave because that's what it required to help that person stay clean and sober. You know, we're a community and nobody gets sober by themselves. Right. And there's so many things that have happened to me in my life. If I didn't have somebody I could call, and it's just like, you know, when Dana was out in, in, uh, in, in New Mexico, I woke up that day and I was so incredibly depressed. I was like, Look at my life. I mean, I, I've got this business and everything's going great, but I'm miserable. I'm absolutely miserable. First thing that I did. And this was in sobriety. Oh, this is last November. This is a yeah, year yeah, yeah. ago, November. This is, you know, this is coming up on 31 years clean and sober. Right. Right. I text my three best friends in recovery. I am not in a good place. Check on me. If you don't hear from me in an hour, call me. You know, you don't ever get to a point. You don't ever graduate. You know, you're, you're always part of continuing education when it comes to recovery. Right. And the day that we forget that, today we go get loaded. And so I knew what to do, you know, because, you know, I love it when life is a lot less fragile, right? When, you know, you're just, I kind of got it all, you know, you know, by the short and curlies, but uh, life will get you and you will be tested. And how you manage that test ultimately boils down to how committed you are to your recovery. Right, and how, how efficient you are at using the tools of the program also. We have a tremendous 
tremendous toolkit that are, it's just laid out on the table. Look, if you have this issue, this is what you do. It's all laid out in black and white, and it's so beautiful. Our choice, and we have a choice, our choice is are we going to use those tools or are we going to not? Are we going to go into that self-depressive state of self-hatred and, and self-loathing and, and pity party all day long? Or are we going to take some action and get the out of this? Well, there's a lot of people that die from terminal uniqueness. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like we, we begin to think, oh, nobody's ever been through this before. There is nothing that we're going to encounter that people before us have not encountered and managed to stay clean and sober. Bingo. Right? I mean, that's the, we start thinking, oh, well, nobody's ever felt this way. Oh, get over yourself. Right? And I've been there myself. I've been there and thought, oh, well, nobody understands. And that's the lie we tell ourselves in the beginning, right? Is nobody will ever understand. The truth of the matter is, is that there are so many people out there that have gone through so much worse you know, and it's like the whole, the title of When the Bottom Falls, right? It, it all goes back to a song out of a band from Memphis called Sleep Theory, who I absolutely love. It was their first single. They were an unsigned band. And the song just resonated with me. And I was driving back from New Mexico. It had a great couple of days, but I was sad because I had to leave Dana out there. And I was listening to this song on repeat. I mean, it just, it, it ministered to me. And uh, part of the chorus is When the Bottom Falls and Goes Up in Flames, you know? And I thought about how I can equate that to recovery because, there, and I write about this and when the bottom falls is, uh, you know, there's some points in there and you think, okay, well, this is the moment, right? Okay. And he's been through all, now he'll get coined and so wrong, wrong. And one of, there's a truism in our recovery vernacular that is completely false. And I'm going to talk about this today. I think it's important to understand. People say, oh, you know, well, they, he hit rock bottom. There is no such thing as rock bottom. There's death because things can always get worse. And that was the case Always for me. Ain't that worse. the truth? That was Jeez. the case for me. Like, I, you know, and I lose my job. I'm ostracized from my entire family. I just kept digging, man. I mean, it's like, hey, let's see if we can get to China here. Don't you know? underestimate <laughs> Satan's creativity. He'll find new ways to make your life awful. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. absolutely. And, and, and the rest of that story, too, is, is like people say, well, you know, they really reached the bottom. And I'm thinking, and I just kind of, I kind of keep my mouth shut, but I snicker about it a little bit. And I think, you think this is bad? Just wait, keep using. Just wait. They right. talk about it being a progressive illness. Oh my gosh. There there was nothing beneath me when I got clean and sober. Nothing beneath me. And so when I, I had all these people trying to tell me, well, you're you know, you're so young. I mean, you just got a drinking disorder. I mean, let's just put whatever fancy label on we want to to make it easier. You know, because I, I think one of the things I love about shows like this is we can give real language to hard things, right? Nowadays, it's like we can't even call things for what they are anymore, right? I mean, it's like we, we have to try to excuse everybody's negative behavior. But let me tell you this. This will kill you. Mm -hmm. And this whole thing about, well, let's just romanticize it. Well, he's not really a drug addict. Yes, he is. Okay? And that's where we get dangerous, right? When we start trying to excuse the negative behavior and try to explain it away rather than call it for well, what I it is. Well, I think people want to – they have this approach of, well, we want to uh, make make the man or woman – not feel so bad. Right. You know, oh, they've got, well, it's a reaction to trauma. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, sad, remorseful, whatever led you to use in excess is pitiable, but it doesn't absolve you of the responsibility. You know, you did those things. Absolutely. Well, another thing about that too is my attitude about that is, you know, and again, I'm, I'm 32 years sober and, you know, I'm sure there's so many things out there that, that I could have done a little bit better. But, you know, if I step on somebody's toes, I hope it hurts. Uh, because the truth and honesty is what gets you sober. 
right? We want to have all these issues about it. maybe it's an issue of morality or like you talk about, it's a reaction to trauma. There, there is a crisis, real or imagined, in every addict's life that pushes you over the edge, period, right? right? Now, we can assign blame if we want to, but it doesn't change the state that we're in. No. Right? right. So no matter how we got here, it's like people, like, and I love these people, and uh, and, and I say love, I, I do mean this from a place of love, but I'm going to be brutally honest here. There are so many people that are involved with somebody that's a still suffering addict, and he goes, well, you know, I think the whole thing is a choice, and I don't believe that this thing is a disease. It doesn't matter what you believe. It, it, your opinion means absolutely nothing, okay? Because we're not going to sit here and debate the fact that your loved one is dying. Right. That's that's where we are. Clay Edwards asked me when I was on his radio show if I thought that addiction was a disease, and I, I told him, uh, my honest, I don't care. It It's immaterial to my day-to-day life, whether or not I think I have a disease of addiction or a learned collective of poor decisions, right. uh, it, it's netting me the same result, misery. Right, exactly. And along those lines, too, it's like, like I'm not going to break anybody's anonymity here, but I deal with a lot of people in, in recovery and, and in addiction. And uh, I, there's a young man that I've spoken with multiple times, you know, and he, he was around the same age I was when I got clean and sober. And, and uh, he's like, well, I drink just like my friends, except these things don't happen to them. Okay, well, as I explained to him, well, you're wired a little bit differently than them. I'm not going to sit here and give you the, you know, the medical definition of all this stuff. But the reality of it is, if it doesn't affect them the way that affects you, then you don't need to do it, right? You, you can't keep having this competition. It's like, well, it's just like, I mean, how many people do you know that sit down and have, you know, they eat chocolate pie every night for dinner or, or whatever, you know, and they never develop diabetes, but you got somebody else out there that, uh, that that tries to eat right. And they do, they got to manage it all the time. We're all wired a little bit differently, but you, but right. your point is a good one. The why doesn't matter. It's the what. Exactly, this is where yeah. we are. It doesn't matter how we got here. We're on death's door, right? And so rather than sit around and say, well, you know, I think you should do this. You do whatever it takes. It's just like John Lennon says. I mean, it's like when, or said, you know, when uh, when somebody's drowning, they're not going to be polite and say, hey, will you please help me? They're just going to scream. And that when you're at that moment, when your loved one is screaming for help, the last thing they need is your hypothesis. They need your help. Grab a hand and start pulling. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> You can't sum it up better than that. I mean, that's that's the reality of the situation. This is a deadly disease. This, this, okay. And if you don't believe it's a disease, fine. This is something that will kill you. There's no if, ands, or buts. And we are. We're all. Everybody's wired a little bit differently. But for me, when I put a substance into my body, it creates. It sets off the phenomenon of craving, and I can't stop. Some people can recreationally take drugs or or drink with with no consequences whatsoever everybody is different and and but the the issue is what are you going to do you're going to take some action or you're going to uh again get back into that the the woe is me oh i'm just so awful i'm a horrible person how could anyone love me like or are you going to like you know what i have hit my head against the wall time and time again i keep on trying i keep on getting up i'm going to do it one more time maybe this time i'll get it and 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 you open up the door and you have a little bit of willingness to do something different and that's what this is all about for me it was i had i had to get to a point where i knew that 
drugs and alcohol were never going to be a solution to my life for for me in my life. And I held on to the idea that maybe pot will be a solution for me. Maybe I can I can leave the meth, I can leave the alcohol, I can leave the cocaine, I can I can leave the alcohol. But but I I really really want. I, I just, I feel like I need pot in my life. Like it, it helps calm me down. And I held on to that for years and years and years. And I would get, you know, five years under my belt, eight years under my belt. And that little voice would come back in and creep in and say, Hey, you know, you're, you're doing really good. Like you're working really hard. How about just, you know, a little bit of pot just to calm you down. And it was, and it doesn't have to be pot. It can be, we hold on to you know, little things all the time. Like I said, it could be a little bit of alcohol or a little bit of wine just every once in a while. But it wasn't until I got to the point where I had tried it time and time again and failed. I had tried the marijuana maintenance plan. I had tried the everything to, to make my way work. And I hit my head against the wall time and time again. And it wasn't until I had that, that moment where the realization was had that drugs and alcohol of any kind any sort of substance is never going to be a good fit for me in my life. And it was at that moment that my higher power, God, whatever you want to call it, recognized that willingness and said, okay, I'm going to take you by the hand and we're going to do this. And that was the difference between this time and, and every other time that I've tried to get sober. So I don't know. You're, what you're doing right now is just, it's, it's, so incredibly beautiful to me. You are out there hitting the streets, driving from Starkville to here today to, to spread the word and to help people. And it's, you're, you know, I, I feel like I know this whole other Steve that, you know, the part, the, the Steve from the first of the book, the beginning of when the bottom falls, the, the criminal, the, you know, kind of cutthroat, like, man, you're gonna, you know, show up at, at, you know, you're a man's man, and 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 you don't take shit from people. Um, and, well, and I still don't. I know, I know. But 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 the mere fact that you have you've used your past to now become profitable to help other people, I guess that's what I'm really grasped onto, and that's why probably having you come on here was probably the most exciting guest that we've had thus far, um, just because. Well, you're living your passions. Yeah, yeah. That's true. One thing, Daniel, that the best phrase to me in the literature of anything recovery-related, it was written almost 100 years ago, right? Half measures avail us nothing. Right. Right? And so I think one of the things, and maybe it's just me, I don't think it is, but I was always a minimum standard person, right? I wanted to do just enough, whether it be in school or in church or whatever. Let me do just enough to be associated with this rather than committed to this. But when I got into recovery, this is the only thing I haven't been able to BS in my whole life. Right. I had to actually do this, and it made me a different person. It changed my perception of myself of what I was capable of. Um, it's just like, you know, now I'm writing all these books. You know, I mean, it's like there was a time in my life that this never would have seemed possible because I'd start a book, I'd never finish because I think, oh, nobody's ever going to read this or I'm just deluding myself. And it was just really, I was feared, fearful of failure. And well, what recovery I, has taught me is I don't have to be because right. I'd, I'd rather fail than not know. Well, I also think it helps us rewrite the story of our lives in that. I know that sounds kind of broad and meaningless, but it allows it has allowed me to recreate in my mind, restructure in my mind, what I 
what I think is is appropriate, what I think is valid, what I think are laudable goals for myself, things that that are meaningful to me and help me achieve what I right. think is meaning in my life. For example, the podcast. Right. Getting to talk to people like you is immensely rewarding to me. Offering up an uh, an avenue for people to have knowledge, not just about recovery and sobriety, but about goal achievement, doing things that make you happy and not just tore up. You know? Right. And what I think is beautiful also, and I'm going to say this, and then we're going to take a quick commercial break uh, and th- special thanks to our sponsors, Audio Alchemy Productions. Um, but you, you had those thoughts. You admitted that you had those thoughts. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to read this. Nobody's going to, you know, and, 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 and you know, I had those thoughts. Nobody's going to listen to this podcast. Nobody's going to watch this podcast. Nobody's going to, you know, read my book, but you pushed through that negative self-talk. You said, I don't know if, you know, I can't speak for you, but you know, oftentimes we just, you know, just say F it, man, and just do it. Just go, just go for it. You never know unless you try. Uh, and you did, and you're successful as a result of doing that. And you never stopped. You never let up. And now look at you go. All right, we're going to take a quick minute. Are you ready to launch your podcast with ease? Let Audio Alchemy Productions elevate your content with our state-of-the-art four-camera studio and top-tier audio production. Focus on your message while we handle the rest. From recording to distribution on all major platforms. Whether you're a brand, an influencer, or a storyteller, let's amplify your voice. Contact us at 601-672-6591 and start your podcast journey today. All right, jumping back in. Thank you so much, Audio Alchemy Productions. Back to your passions. Okay, Mississippi State, Duty Noble. How do you feel about State's NIL work? Well, I didn't know we were going to go there today. Uh, (laughs) I think it's been okay. I mean, I give Charlie Winfield and those guys a lot of credit. I mean, I think there were a couple of – you know, attempts early on that, that, that weren't successful, but I think he learned from all of that. And, and uh, you know, that we did the million-dollar match here uh, a few months ago and ended up raising over $3 million, what we already had. So, you know, State's pretty much in line with their contemporaries. But um, I just don't think any of this is sustainable. The money runs out at some point. It's everybody. got to. Like, the, Georgia and Florida State really – I mean, I know that the – I, I, I'm torn between what I think is moral about using players name, image, and likeness to make money for the schools. I'm torn between just outright manipulation, the outright manipulation in using of college players. And I mean, Florida state got beat by 60 points because those students, you know, they're good players opted out of the game to protect their money-making endeavors. And I, you can't blame them for that, but I just can't see how NIL and opting out is ultimately going to be good for college football. Well, would they have opted out if they'd been in a playoff? No. You know, that, that's why the whole thing's such a straw man argument. You know, it's like, people say, well, it's a meaningless game. Well, at the end of the day, they're all meaningless. I mean, honestly. So now are we going to get to a point now where it's like, well, we're going to play an FCS team this week. That's a meaningless game. That doesn't. That's not a conference game. Whatever. So I'm not going to play that game too. I mean, you know, 
I think there's a balance. You look at what Alabama's done. Alabama doesn't have opt-outs. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things you look at. I mean, it's, I think it's a cultural thing, but uh, there's a lot of people that are, quote, opting out to prepare for the draft that are going to end up in the XFL or whatever we're calling it, the UFL, whatever we're calling it now these days. Um, and there's a lot of people in these kids' ear. But, um, you know, I think the days of, of guys playing for loyalty and for love of a university for many respects is over, and I think that's a really sad thing. Well said. Thank I you. don't think there's any loyalty at all. None. I'm going to be perfectly honest with both of you. I'm not a big sports guy, so this is way out of my wheelhouse. Way out of my wheelhouse. I think talking about NIL stuff is more controversial than talking about drug addiction, to be honest <laughs> with you. So. Oh, look. I'm telling Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there's still dark money out there, which is so stupid to me. It's like there's some people that are so egotistical and so narcissistic. It's like they're still going to break the rules because you can make all the rules you want. I mean, they don't apply to the cheaters. What cheaters do, right? Right. But you, there is now a, a legal vehicle to work through a collective to legally donate money to help in your school's recruiting efforts, and people are still out there with dark money. It, and you're just putting your university at harm. I mean, honestly, because honestly, I think one of the things is going to happen. I think if that continues to happen, if there's dark money out there, I think people are going to get absolutely hammered because the NCAA, as toothless as it may be today, there will be an overcorrection. Hey, we gave you guys a legal way to do it. You still cheated, you idiot. You know, you know. So there, there, there will be a re, there'll be a recalibration of things. But uh, we just got to kind of tread water right now. It's just, uh, it's very frustrating in many respects. But uh, you know, it is what it is, and it's not. You can't blame the the kids, and I hate to call them all kids because most of them are old enough to go fight for our country, and they're certainly not kids across right. enemy lines, right? But uh, the young people didn't fail us as adults leadership failed the young people uh by not having a better plan before all this kind of came out but um you know it is i think they ought to condition nil money on playing all the games for the whole season i mean florida state got beat by 60 points 60 points in a bowl game it could have been worse well it could have kirby kirby could have kirby could have got a hundred if he wanted to it's crazy how that works. And it's like, that's the thing too, for the fan out there, I understand the fan apathy in many respects. It's like, I mean, how do you go buy your kid a Jersey? Right. Because you don't even know if the players are going to be here next year. Right. And I think what the best thing, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Mississippi state, Ole Miss people like that is maybe you sell Dak Prescott and Archie Manning jerseys or whatever. And, and then they'll in turn donate their proceeds back to the university, whatever, you know, maybe because there's like all this NIL merchandising now. Hey, you can go buy Steve Robertson's jersey, but Steve Robertson may not be here next year, right? right. So you go buy it. Now it's obsolete, right? And so there's just so much to it. It's an evolving thing, and we've got to change with it. But uh, I think the best thing that could happen, and I know this is controversial now to some people, but I think there needs to be a unionization and a collective bargaining agreement uh, because, like, laws from state to state vary. And, like, like in, in Utah, BYU and Utah can broker the deal, we can't do that in Mississippi. In most states, you can't. And so there's just too many state laws out there that are in contrast with each other. There needs to be a uniform policy, and there needs to be a situation where everybody profits in some respect. But, uh, you know, the star players obviously deserve to make more. Their they're, name, image, and likeness is being used to market the program, right? I mean, and that's a, a thing that happened here recently is there's this lawsuit now about players that were in the pre-NIL era that were used, like, for ticket drives, like they'd have a, a video of Dak Prescott scoring a touchdown or, uh, you know, Bo Wallace throwing a touchdown pass to, Sinquez, uh, to 
uh, Dante Moncrief or something, you know, well, those players, name, image, and likeness was used for profit, right? So you've already set the parameter. So now those players are going to be somewhat compensated. And that's, that's another thing that is kind of coming forth. But the thing that I ask myself is where does it end? You know, does it go all the way back to the seventies or eighties or whatever, when, uh, you know, players were appeared on the, the cover of football programs, you bought the football program because your favorite player was on it. He didn't get any money. Where does it end? Because I think at, at this point, you know, it's a Pandora's box that is open, and there's an enterprising lawyer out there that's ready to represent every bit of these players. There's always an enterprising lawyer out Absolutely. there thinking of something. Well, you know, there's a modern trend in America to try to try to right past wrongs by figuring out that you know we just got to monetize it somehow. And that somebody should pay for every bad thing that's ever happened. And it's just, I mean, that's why there are statutes of limitation. You know, there's a, there's a limit here. There should be. And so there should, yeah. Maybe we can bring a class action lawsuit against all the drug dealers that uh, <laughs> sold us drugs and, right. and alcohol. And all those stores that sold me beer when I was under 21, right? right. right. Did my parents get a, get a crack at that? You know, it's like we, we think that money is the solution for everything. And, and uh, you know, as David Lee Roth said many times, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness, but it might be able to pay off unhappiness for a while. You know? right. um, but it's amazing. You're exactly right. I mean, it's like, th this is not about the good of the game. And in many respects, it's not about the good of the players. Now I'm a firm believer, like when Jake Mangum and Dak Prescott played for Mississippi state, I mean, how many number 15 jerseys did they sell? And they didn't make a nickel in that. That, right. that. That's wrong. I think everybody can admit that's wrong. And when they first began to roll out this NIL stuff, that's what they said. It's like, well, this is this is what we're going to do. Well, there's even a South Park about. Have you have, have you ever seen that? Oh yeah. The, the uh, Cartman rolls into the the university. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, how, how do you uh, not pay your slave? I mean, <laughs> your student athlete. Yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> they were used and they were manipulated and they were yeah a lot of money was made off of their back but they also graduated without that yeah. too though yeah I mean, they so also got a free degree yeah it's not like they were they were just uh you know complete volunteers or something yeah i mean i i'm okay with some level of revenue sharing what i'm not okay with is what we have now which is the wild wild west where uh, a player can go to southern miss and have a couple of good years and then go in the portal and then now all of a sudden you know, the coaches that helped develop him and recruit him when nobody else wanted him or left with nothing. And now all of a sudden this guy's cashing a half million dollar check to go, you know, play for an SEC school. And you say, you know what, that's good for the player, well, but it's not good for everybody. And uh, it, it's also not good for the people that are having to pay the half million dollars to get him either. I mean, it's just, you know, maybe I'm old school or whatever, but I, I think that we have lost a lot in the NIL era. And it went, and I, I give John Cohen credit. He told me before it ever happened. He goes, when they passed this, transfer rule that allows for immediate eligibility coupled with an IL, it's going to be an absolute disaster. And I didn't believe him. And he was absolutely right because they've now coupled all that together. You know, there wasn't enough wrong with the previous system anyway, when it came to transfers. Uh, my whole thing was like waivers. Like if, if Daniel Anderson uh, plays at Mississippi state one minute a, a game for a basketball game, but he could transfer to Memphis or UAB and play more. Well, why would I object to that? Right. I mean, he didn't contribute here. He may be able to contribute elsewhere. So we'll just all agree and sign a waiver to grant him immediate eligibility. And and so there was nothing wrong with that. Right. You know, and so then they all will do it for everybody. And it's opened up this Pandora's box that uh, I don't think that people understood all the ramifications of that decision when they got behind it.
Well, it'll correct, I guess, over time. But then people will have something to complain about. And then some enterprising lawyer will figure out a way to sue somebody. If there's an enterprising lawyer out there willing to represent me for all of the <laughs> aggravation and angst of all of this, having to cover all this stuff last few, no, I'm kidding. I love what we do. But uh, what's so crazy for us is like, I remember, you know, you had national signing day in February, right? So th this time of year, like I couldn't be here ordinarily because you'd have 25 visitors on campus because you took all the official visits in January. Right. And so that was where the calendar worked and you're ramping up to that day. Well, you know, this, this year, right. So Zach Arnett is fired the Monday after the Texas A&M. So that starts the coaching search. And so we're covering that all day, every day, in addition to covering the team. And then you've got recruiting. We just kind of put recruiting on hold. I remember telling all my guys on staff, I said, we're going to do kind of the minimal stuff on this recruiting stuff because with a new staff coming in, you don't know who's going to be capped, who's going to be offered, who's going to be recruited. So we just kind of put a pin in that and covered the coaching search. And then, then you get to December signing period, and now we're in the middle of finishing up transfer portal recruiting. And like guys like Jeff Levy that are brand-new coaches – he hadn't had a moment's peace unless it was on Christmas Day since right. the day he got here. And so I, I'm looking forward to the drop-ad date. Classes start at Mississippi State. I think it's the 16th. And then the drop-ad dates are the 22nd and 23rd. And even with that, there's a little wiggle room. But it's like once you get in the middle of January, uh, you'll be able to kind of take a bit of a deep breath. But it has been an absolute meat grinder for everybody involved with all this you know, now for the better part of three months. And I think that fans need a moment. Right, they need a, a chance to take a deep breath. It's good for us, right? It's good for our industry. I mean, the, the transfer portal there has been a cash cow for uh, networks like uh, ours. But um, but the reality of it is, is that if you are a college fan today, you're being asked to do more than ever before. You've been asked to pay more, pay these seat licensing deals, your donations to the Bulldog Club or the Loyalty Foundation or uh, whatever they have at Southern Miss, and then on top of that, now we're asking you to give the NIL. The financial commitment, I think now in many respects, is outweighing the emotional commitment for a lot of people that just love their school and love being able to reunite with people on campus and, and have a good day at the ballpark. But it, it's become such a business, I think, that some of our fans are, are kind of worn out. Well, especially when the, it doesn't yield them what they want it to yield. I mean, if, if your team is – causing you to pay up all this money, but they're going 10 and two or 11 and one, you might can stomach a little bit, but when they're not, you know, when you have to pay the, the Pied Piper, so to speak, and you have, you know, you lost your coach and you're behind the eight ball. It's tough. Well, the thing that I would say too, it's just like Nick Saban brought this point up when the NIL was first kind of, when we were in the first birth pangs of all this. He goes, you know, you got this player that maybe you gave us $10,000 to go get, and then he comes in and doesn't play, and then he transfers. You're thinking, well, I'm never going to do that again. You know, yeah. I'm never going to be involved in all that. I mean, it's not like you can claim it on your taxes. And what's so funny, the beginning of all this, some people structured their NIL programs as if it was going to be tax deductible, like you're donating to some charity. I think to myself, what idiot thought that was going to work? And now all of a sudden you've got these people who have given all this money and now they're having to pay taxes on top of it. It's not tax deductible. And so that all is so interesting to me because I think in the beginning, people thought, okay, well, it'd be okay if Will Rogers gets a 
you know, an advertising deal with a local car dealership and just paid for an ad, to do an ad or whatever. Yeah, I think he did a subway ad and things. Well, that all makes sense, right? You should enable, enable them to do that. They should be able to get some money from their jersey sales, right? That's how they rolled it out to us. They never told us we're going to have all these slush funds out here where everybody's donating all this, and then we're going to use that to recruit with. And and it, that in and of its face is a violation, but nobody ever enforces it. It's kind of like, you know, speeding on the interstate, right? I mean, you just kind of go with the flow of traffic, and you don't want to be the guy leading the pack out there, but uh, you're not observing the posted speed limit signs sure. just because it's not being enforced. Well, they didn't ask me what I thought ahead of time. <laughs> No, but we all have opinions, though. Yeah. But that's the thing that I think about. It's just you know, being a fan. I mean, it's never been more expensive to be a fan. And there are some people that are just like, you know what, I'm just going to sit at home and watch it on TV. And you know, there's a lot of people in you know, Mississippi State and Old Mississippi has real success in baseball. A lot of people are like, you know, I'm going to really pay a little bit closer attention to this. Of course, I'll miss a big year in football this year. And, you know, they're, they're pushing now, right, to try to get over the hump next year. And they, they should, right? I mean, I think Mississippi State – Fans in the same situation would would feel this esprit de corps, like, hey, we're so close. Let's all rally together and get this thing done. Um, but I think some people begin to ask themselves, you look up one day and you say, well, what is all this really for? You know, I, I used to just come for the love of the game and the joy of the game, watching the kids play and support my university. And, you know, now I'm a stockholder and all this, but I don't get the return on the investment, you know. Well, I, I don't think I think that that middle tier schools like State and Ole Miss are going to end up suffering more than the Texases and the USC's that just have such a large base of people to draw from. I mean, it's just input. I don't think over the years, I, I don't think State and Ole Miss are going to be able to compete. No, I, th- I think we're, I think we're probably a year to eighteen months away from having some meaningful change with all this of course they went and lobbied you know the federal government for whatever that's worth you know um to try to get some some parameters get some guardrails for this thing and i think eventually you'll see some of that stuff happen but it's like you know once the genie's out of the bottle how do you get them back in you know I mean, you're not going to be able to come back and say okay no you're not you can't do this and it just seems like every time the ncaa tries to implement some new program there's a new lawsuit and then some young enterprising or old enterprising lawyer cashes in on that and and the next thing you know, it's because they, they don't really care about the game. I mean, they're, they're, it's it's a case, right? And that's how they look at it. That's their job, right? These are my clients, and I feel that they have been their rights have been infringed upon. So I'm here to write those wrongs. Yeah. So we need you to uh, to write us all a check. We'll all go away. But then you set a precedent. Then all of a sudden, it just goes from case. And it, it always starts in California. It's funny how if you notice, like all that. You know, with name, image, and likeness, it goes all the way back to the O'Bannon lawsuit over the EA Sports stuff, right? And now we hadn't had the college football game in forever. We're going to get some information tomorrow, but it's like, it feels like forever. You know how much fun that was? I mean, you'd sit up at night, you couldn't wait to go to GameStop and get that game and sit around and play that with your favorite team, and you could download rosters and things like that. Well, that's been taken from us, too. You know, now we're going to get it back, and then the kids are going to get compensated, but it's like, it's just so incredible how so many things that we loved have been diminished uh, because of litigation. Well, in, in new and inventive ways of, of monetizing. Sure. You know, do you think you might ever write a book on all that? I don't know. I don't know if I want to. What about? Uh, I, I think you ought to write a book. 
Oh, just one? No, no, <laughs> on uh, on the dark money side of things. Oh, well, that'll be the Salman Rushdie book, right? Like, when, right. Uh, uh, <laughs> wouldn't it? Oh, I got some stories. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I was at the Mississippi Book Festival, been been so incredibly grateful to have a chance to go to that. I mean, that is such a special thing. I mean, it really is. It's like I, I've been able to live a pretty cool life and meet a lot of cool people and do a lot of cool things. That's one of those things that means a lot to me. It really does. And uh, a couple of years ago, this is, of course, shortly after Flim Flam and all the free stuff. And Salman Rushdie was like the, you know, the the the, the featured author, right? And uh, I'm on a sports panel, and and uh, somebody said, who is more likely to get shot, Salman Rushdie or, or Steve Robertson? You know, and I think I won the poll. But, uh, but yeah, when I get ready to retire and move to Costa Rica or something, I'll, uh, I'll write the tell-all book and you know, all the things that I've kind of tucked away. I got a few things. Uh, I got some things out there that can make some people nervous. Of course, by the time I write it, the statute of limitations will have run out. And uh, But, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I wrote Cam Newton's commitment to Auburn. And uh, I, one of the, my favorite accomplishments as a sports writer is this is back before we expanded to 14 teams in the SEC, but – uh, I was one of the first four people in the recruiting industry to break a commitment to every SEC school in the same recruiting cycle. And you don't think about how hard that is, but I was doing a lot of junior college work and things like that. And so but what happens is when you get these kids first, you know, you're on them, they, they feel somewhat indebted to you. It's like, well, hey, this guy remembered me and kind of shined a light on me. And so working through all of that stuff, um, I've been able to accomplish a lot. I'm really proud of, but the Cam Newton thing, I, I, I could write a big story about that. It's uh, Cam Newton. When he was at Blend college, right? Nobody was doing anything with Cam. I mean, Cam's name was mud, right? Cause Cam had been kicked out at Florida or he left Florida, kicked out, whatever you want to call it, over that stolen laptop thing. And anyway, so he was on the trash heap of college football, man, at Blend college. And uh, I had done some work with some players at Blend, So I had, their offensive coordinator's phone number, and I'm just going through thinking we got to get a JUCO quarterback at Mississippi State. Oh well, Cam Newton makes sense. Nobody had done anything with Cam, so I hit up the OC at Blend. I goes, "Hey, I'd like to interview Cam. Do you have his number?" And he goes, "Man, that Steve would be great. Cam has been great here. He has been a model student for us. Been a good leader. He could use some good press." I said, "Listen, I don't want to talk about the laptop stuff. All I want to talk about is Blend and who he's talking to right now." So sure enough, I get Cam on the phone. And uh, he could not have been nicer. I mean, honestly, he was so incredibly grateful. And um, then, like, t- 20 minutes later, his dad calls me after the article's posted. Hey, can you change this and you could change that? I was like, nah, nah. Not really work like <laughs> that. Nah, 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 that's not how I do it. But he goes, hey, in the future, if you want to talk to him, I want you to call me first. And I'm like, yeah, we'll see. But I, I saw it was a chance, too to get his dad's input, and I wanted him to be in there because ultimately I wanted to announce his commitment, whether it be to Mississippi State or not. And uh, it's so funny. So I found out after he visited Mississippi State that he was going to visit Auburn. And uh, Cam's roommate at Blinn was a guy named Chad Frokenicht. You probably never heard of Frokenicht in your life. F-R-O-C-H-N-E-C-I-T, if I remember correct, Frokenicht. Well, State had offered him a preferred walk-on, and uh, – he really wanted a scholarship situation. wasn't going to work out, but he and Cam had gotten to be really close. And so Chad had told me, because I was the only person doing anything with Chad, and uh, he goes, hey, Cam's visiting Auburn this weekend. So I go over to our Auburn message board, said, hey, Cam Newton's visit. So all their media people are like, oh, no, this isn't true. I mean, I, we've already got our quarterback. And so this is like in the infancy of smartphones, right? So I call Froconic back. I'm like, Chad, I mean, 
Auburn's media says he's not coming in. He goes, oh, he absolutely is. And I said, well, how do you know for sure? So he sends me a picture of a plane ticket. And so then I'm like, okay, I, I got it now, right? And so all these Auburn people are like, no, there's nothing to this until he showed up on campus. And so I got to break his commitment. But it's funny, though, uh, some people at Mississippi State were a little salty, of course, that Cam wasn't coming to Mississippi State. So they, you know, they, they wanted it out there. And um, so somehow, some way, through a source, and most people say I don't have any, but I guess I'm just lucky. But uh, but anyway, I got Cam's mom's phone because Cam wouldn't Cam wouldn't return my calls and Cecil wouldn't return my calls. So I get a hold of the mom and I played a little poker with her. I say, well, congratulations. I understand Cam's made a decision going to Auburn. Oh, yeah, we're so excited. And uh, so I knew I had it. And uh, I says, well, I'd like to interview you on the record if it's okay. And she goes, well, I'd like for you to talk to my husband. And uh, I said, well, could you have him call me? I've been trying to reach him all day. <laughs> so sure enough, he calls me, Pastor Cecil Newton, and uh, he absolutely let me know in no uncertain terms how upset he was that I'd got a hold of his wife. And I said, well, you know, if, if you'd pick up a phone call, maybe I wouldn't have to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he goes, well, yeah, go ahead and write your story. And uh, they gave me a couple quotes. But um, it was one of those wild things because of who Cam came to be. And, and he has had so many critics, and I, and I haven't had any interaction with him since he left Auburn. But I can tell you, Cam Newton, when when I dealt with him, he was absolutely first class. And you can say what you want to about what he wore to press conferences and things like that. But, I mean, this is one of the, the greatest Southeastern Conference quarterbacks of all time. And nobody was even interviewed in this guy. You know, he became a Heisman Trophy winner, wins an NFL championship. But people would have interest in those types of stories. Uh, just because of the fact that it's a little bit off the beaten path a little bit. But I, I can just tell you unequivocally that Cam Newton was amazing to me. And when I first had the opportunity to do something good for him, he was incredibly grateful. I love it. I love it. Well, Drew, we are almost out of time. You want oh, to uh, unfair. drop your uh, – and Steve will definitely have you come back at, you know, sometime down the road. But you want to ask your questions there? What do you do poorly in your recovery? Um, that's a good question. There's a lot of people out there willing to take my inventory. Maybe it's better if you ask them. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't go to meetings as often as I should. And I've never left a meeting feeling worse than when I went in. Sure. Um, I do go. I don't go. COVID, it kind of became a COVID casualty for me. I kind of got out of the habit of going. I'd watch some Zoom meetings and things like that. Um I don't go to meetings as often as I probably should, but I still do my, I do my personal inventory every day uh, before I go to bed. It's one of the things that I always try to do. And, and um, I get up each day and I try to read something positive. Even if it's not daily reflections, I try to read something other than Twitter and message boards (laughs) uh, to get some, to get my day off on a good start. Um, But that's probably the one thing I, I probably owe it to myself and to the community to be a little more plugged in at meetings. When I went and picked up my chip, it was a kid that picked up his 24-hour chip. And uh, when I got up and picked up 32, I was watching him, and he, he he mouthed the word, wow. And so I made sure when I when they always ask you, well, how'd you do it, you know? And I know people would say, well, you know, Steve, you're not supposed to cross-talk in AA. Well, y'all can kick me out if you want to. <laughs> um, but I looked at that kid, and I said, the chip that you picked up today is just as important, if not more important, than the one that I picked up. Absolutely. And, but it's so important, too, for us that have some some serious time to go to those meetings, not just for ourselves, 
And it's not just for us to see them, it's for them to see us. Because if you went to a meeting and everybody had six, nine months sobriety, what would you think? You'd think, does anybody ever make it? There's, right? a, ce- there's a ceiling here. Yeah, and right. so I think that's important. And I always go back to Hattiesburg. <clears throat> that's where I got sober. I always go back to Hattiesburg to pick up chips because it's not just that I want to see those same old faces again. It's just that that's the place where I took my stand in life. And every time I make that turn, I can just feel myself gaining strength. I feel the same way about Hattiesburg. Yeah. I got, I found real freedom there. Love it. All right. What do you do well in your recovery? Uh, Transparency for one. And uh, on my way here, I had a couple phone calls with some people that uh, kind of I don't say that I sponsor them, but I am a mentor in many respects. I don't have the time for full-time sponsorship, even though I get a lot from it. Uh, I'm, I'm a friend to those new to recovery, and I always make time for them. And they always act so apologetic, right? And uh, hey, I know you're always busy, and I am always busy, but I'm never too busy to help somebody new in recovery. Right. And uh, it's there's some people that, and some that you know, I will sit them down and say, look, you are never bothering me. Okay, don't feel that way. You know, forget the fact that you've seen my name in, in the paper or on ESPN. Or whatever. Forget all that stuff. I'm an addict just like you, right? You're my people. And these are my people, right? The people that the still suffering addict and those who love them and those in recovery, that's the tribe that I have the closest kinship to, right? Even more so than the Mississippi State stuff, right? It's like people look at me and say, that's the Mississippi State guy. No, no, before all of that, at the end of the day, these are my people. These are the people that I care about. And and uh, I've got a dear friend. When I first went to Starville, I talked about AA, which is kind of a challenge up there. And he goes, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to make it better? You know, and so I think being that kind of led me to be a little more transparent about my recovery, uh, especially in the age of social media. And I'll tell you a quick story about that, an ego check that I got about three years ago. Is, uh, you know, I'd written Flim Flam and Stark Villains had come out and the website was doing great and, and uh, the Boneyard was you know, still doing great. And I was at the Fast Break gas station on 182 in Starkville. And this lady walks up to me and she goes, "Hey, you're um, you're you're the randoms guy because I do the thing on Facebook occasionally called randoms. It's just you know recovery thoughts and and I thought you know I got I got a I got best selling books I got this website <laughs> yeah. and, I, and this is what this woman knows me for something on Facebook you know yeah you know, really had to get over myself pretty quick and she says well a friend of mine turned me on to that and uh, my son's in rehab and she goes I print those out and I mail them to him." You know, it's like, then you start thinking, that's oh. what, that's what really matters. <laughs> that's what, yeah. that's what matters most, right? Is carrying the message to the addict that still suffers. And I got to see this lady out here that finds <clears throat> some sense of hope because it's just something that I put on Facebook. Usually it's a gratitude list or it's when I'm down and depressed and I'm trying to, trying to pull myself Psych up. Psych yourself or, up. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but it's like, that's the thing. It made me realize that at the core of all of this, the recovery piece is the most important piece because that's what everything else is dependent on the cornerstone of that. Right. Exactly. You'd have never had that cool Cam Newton story. No, no. And I, and that's the thing about all this stuff too. It's like, I had somebody one time tell me that I'm probably Mississippi's most famous drug addict. And I don't know how I feel <laughs> about that. Um, but if that's the mantle that some people want to put, I, I'm prepared to carry it because I'm so incredibly committed to this, you know, to carry the message. And uh, 
you know, I get emotional thinking about this. I'll try to make it through this without crying. It's difficult for me to even talk about recovery because I'm so damn grateful, right? Even all these years later, everything I have came from me getting clean and sober and, right. and staying clean and sober. But when I hear these stories, now these people contact me from all over the country. And um, there are people out there that are really struggling. And I don't, I don't mean like, you know, they didn't get to go on a good vacation this year. There are people that are so spiritually and emotionally broken. And they see something like this, this show, and us sitting around talking about recovery. And they want it so bad. And they just don't know how to do it. And I think that's the real challenge for people like us that have been in recovery for a while is we can get out here and celebrate being on top of the mountain and, hey, look at all this. And at the end of the day, it is a daily struggle for so many people just to simply make it through the day and get back into bed without drinking or using. And that used to be me. You know, it, it did. And I'll never forget that. And I, I had this lady... The first time I did a recovery podcast, she called me through Facebook Messenger, and it was really weird. I'd never heard my phone just start ringing. I'm like, what is that? You know. And she just starts telling me her life story and how I got to get sober because of my career, my family, my kids. And I said, wait, 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 wait a second. What if all that's gone tomorrow anyway? What are you going to do, get loaded? And she goes, well, I just don't know. And I says, if you're doing it for any other reason, it's never going to work because that's a condition. And I'll tell you this without any equivocation. Every limitation that I have placed on my recovery, like everything I've always said, well, if this ever happened, I'd probably go get loaded. Every bit of it's happened. But I hadn't gone and gotten loaded. Every single thing. It's like God is like, okay, well, hey, you, you want to put this hurdle up here? I'm going to help you get over it. And, and one of the things that I've learned about recovery, and I think it's maybe the most important thing that we say today, is God will do for you what you can't do for yourself, but not one thing more. You're not a robot. You got to do your part. Right. It's you got to like, bring the shovel. Well, my, exactly. And and that's the thing too. It's like, well, so if if it's all about God, if I go get loaded, to God get me drunk? You know, you have a decision to make. God will provide you the opportunity to have the freedom to make that decision, but we got to do our part. And it's all goes back to this whole thing about you know I, I didn't get lucky. I had to work for this. And I couldn't go reinvent the wheel or, or build a better mousetrap. I mean, you know, it's like that. I, I remember there was a guy named Robert Pesner, and he was my first sponsor, God rest his soul. And uh, I, I stayed sober the first two years despite him because uh, he told me I couldn't make it. He knew what he was doing, right? He knew that I was one of these ultra competitive people. I needed to be challenged. I didn't. I didn't need to be coddled and say, "Oh, it's all going to be okay." I needed somebody to get in my face and say, "You know what? I don't think you're tough enough to do this." Because he knew that that's how I was going to respond because I'm stubborn in the right way, right? And um, he told me something that still haunts me to this day is during family week, he, he told me, he said, we're teaching your mom how to mourn your loss. Mm. And, yeah, it's tough. That Even tough. all these years later. And he goes, you know, and we're going to – he said, Steve, he said, uh, I think it's best that you just pack up your stuff and leave Pine Grove. And he goes, there are literally thousands of people dying to have that same bed you take for granted. Because I was just BSing my way through. Because that's how I got into life, right? Just I was always smarter than everybody else, right? And so I could just kind of, I could give that half-measured effort, right? I could just go out there and be a minimum standard guy and still be better than most people. And and um, it was one of those things that resonated with me. And he told me, you're, he said, Steve, you're too smart to accept this simple program. 
He said, because you can't just work the steps. You got to think you can find some easier, quicker way. Because I thought, like, if I memorized the 12 steps, they'd let me leave. You know, right. if I could come in here and just recite the 12 steps and just kind of BS my way through, they let, let me, me go. study for this test. Exactly. Look, man, please come back soon. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Man, we appreciate you. Um, ladies and gentlemen, go get his new book, When the Bottom Falls. Um, you can get it at Lemuria. Yep, you can do that. Or you um, can order at whenthebottomfalls.com. There you go. There you go. Uh, man, thank you f- so much for thank coming. Um, can, I, can I say one more thing? Yeah, I, of I course, of course. Running, running long. I know we're running long here, but the number one thing today, whether you're a parent or a husband or a wife or, or a child of somebody that's suffering, never, ever, ever surrender the people you love to drugs and alcohol. Ever, ever, ever. And, and I wrote about this in the book. I, I was so incredibly wrong about the people that love me. I, I thought I was unlovable. I thought I'd burned every bridge. And I thought, you know what? They are content to let me die. That's what I had convinced myself of. And um, I get chills thinking about this. But it's like, it's kind of like that visualization. Like, you, you just want, you want them to reach for help, right? It's like, you know the people that I loved weren't even at arm's length. It wasn't even like I had to reach. It was just like that first little twitch. Like once they saw my hand move in that direction, they all grabbed me. And so there is somebody that you love. Don't give up. That may feel that way. And that's why I think it's so important that you got to love people where they are. I'm not saying excuse their behavior. Acceptance is not approval, right? No enabling. Exactly. But, once they make the move, you got to be there to help. You got to be there to pull because they are convinced that nobody loves them. And love is the greatest of things. And uh, I don't know that I would have made it without. And sometimes people love you enough to tell you the truth. You know, I got enough people blowing smoke up my skirt, right? But I love those people that are just call me and say, you know, Steve, I think you're being a little bit phony about this, right? You know, I need that in my life. But when I was in that state, I just needed to know that somebody gave a damn, that somebody cared about me, that somebody loved me because I had convinced myself that nobody did. And so if you have that person in your life, maybe today, and maybe you don't need to call them or go see them. Maybe you just send them a message on Facebook and say, listen, I just want you to know that I love you because you don't know what that may mean to that person who is convinced they're unlovable. Well said. Well said. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Fantastic. I hope that's what you guys wanted.